Welcome to Meaningful Journeys, a podcast about pilgrimage. I'm Dr. Heather Warfield, and I am passionate about connecting humanity through our shared quests for meaning. In this podcast, I'll be talking with pilgrims and pilgrimage scholars. I will have conversations with people impacted by both ancient and contemporary pilgrimage journeys, and we will also hear from people who live at these sacred sites. This program is supported in part by Antioch University New England and the Meaningful Life Institute. In this episode of Meaningful Journeys, I talk with Dane Monroe, who is a resident academic at the Institute for Tourism, Travel, and Culture at the University of Malta. We cover his thoughts on pilgrimage, his experiences as a knight in the Order of St. John, and the concept of post-pilgrimage. We started our discussion with me asking Dane about what drew him to pilgrimage studies. As a young man, uh, I did a lot of uh, walking, trekking, bush, uh, bushwalking, uh, so always on foot, gear on my back, big boots, and just go for it. Totally probably um, not thinking what the consequences will be if you go out in the bush, out in the wild, but uh, very enjoyable. And um, then I went into uh, pilgrimage, you know, long, uh, long distance walking. Also, I became a veteran of Lourdes uh, for pilgrimage. And uh, that's, well, that was a very nice thing, actually. I just want to say that pilgrimage, of course, um, attracts me because it has been part of the human condition since about last 70,000 years or so. So I can't put myself outside that human condition. More or less, it goes hand in hand with tourism. Uh, tourism and pilgrimage are probably the same age, about 70,000 years old, including all the things that come with it. Uh, souvenirs, things, human conditions, praying, uh, I don't know, for the good hunt, for a good harvest, uh, health, security, all these things come with it. So I can't place myself outside of it. So I thought it was a good idea to um, continue with pilgrimage. I'm still doing it. Of course, this year we are terribly frustrated with the um, COVID situation, but uh, that will go, that will pass. Uh, just briefly, or maybe not briefly, <clears throat> you you talked about being a veteran uh, of the Lord pilgrimage. And I... I I have not yet talked with someone on this podcast about that particular pilgrimage. And, and I know I'm sort of lurching it on you right now, but it would be, it would be really uh, interesting. I think for listeners to hear more about that pilgrimage, uh, about what is involved in it and also about your own experiences with the pilgrimage. Okay. So um, my Lord's pilgrimage started off as a, um, private thing, we went there with the family. Uh, I live in Malta, and Malta, most people are Roman Catholic, and the Maltese are um, very enthusiastic visitors of Lourdes. They have been for a long time. So I went there for the first time with the whole family, that's now about 30 years ago, and uh, I was never been there. I was rather skeptic, uh, but it won me over because I could see the structure you have the, uh, the hustle and bustle of the, of, the, of the town with all the hotels, shops, bars, restaurants, commerce, and what have you not. 
But if you go down the road into the sanctuary, there's suddenly there is peace and quiet. There is singing of the birds, the rustling of the leaves, murmuring of the water, people in prayer and people doing the spiritual thing, people doing the religious thing. And of course, it's uh, again, a part of the human condition. It's all about healing and getting better. It's a Marian sanctuary. And people who do not understand this, um, let's say the short-sighted version. Okay, it's, um, there are shops, uh, every souvenir shop uh, sells the same thing, but there is a purpose to it. A part of pilgrimage is not, you're not 24 hours seven a pilgrim. Um, you do what you came for, and then you need to enjoy with everybody else, joie de vivre, or as the Italians say, dolce finiente. A moment together with the family, uh, you eat, you celebrate life, you celebrate your own health, you pray for people, we have prayed for people who do not have it. And then of course, um, people with a small budget, say a grandmother who has $50 in the pocket can buy 50 souvenirs. So when she comes back, she can share with everybody in the neighborhood, is the family, her experience in Lourdes. It's part of the healing process. So cure is care and listening is gold. And of course, uh, Lourdes is a fantastic place when you go in summer. Uh, can you give us a bit of background on how it became associated with uh, military pilgrimages? Well, it's um, of course the Order of St. John sees this as their spiritual headquarters. And of course, many people after the First World War, uh, even Napoleon, after the Napoleonic Wars, uh, after say the second half of the 19th century, when it became very attractive, uh, people came there for healing and military pilgrimage is also for healing, of course, of closing off, uh, closure of horrible situations. Uh, the First World War, the trenches in France, uh, that must have been horrible, you know, with uh, wet feet all day, gas and all the other things. So it's um, part of healing, uh, military go there. They're not celebrating victory or loss, they're celebrating healing, mental, physical, and this kind of thing. So the Order of St. John has been coming there for a long time, and um, it's turned out to be an annual happening. So the first week of May, um, many knights of the order and dames go to Lourdes. Uh, we have about a thousand uh, knights and dames from the United States, uh, another 6,000 of the rest of the world. They take their patients, their lords is sick, and we indulge in a week of uh, listening, healing, and uh, seeing each other, celebra celebration of life. And that has become uh, a great tradition. Uh, in Malta, uh, the order started off in 1992 with um, people, a uh, handful of people, 10 or so, would fly to Rome and then go on the train with the Italian knights towards Lourdes. And nowadays, until last year, we, we're flying with two planes from Malta to Lourdes, about 300 people. And it has become a social highlight as well. It, it, does it seem to be uh, increasing in prominence or decreasing? Uh, I think it's, um, well, it's growing always. Uh, pilgrimage is uh, one of the growing sectors of tourism, of course. Uh, the higher the crisis, the bigger pilgrimage will grow. 
it's uh, one of the steady stays of tourism, it's pilgrimage. Because it's clean, uh, if you read the work of George Greenia, he will give you all the elements why pilgrimage is good. It's repeatable, there's no shame in it, everybody can do it, it's accessible, all the other good things of life. There, there's no um, real bad thing about pilgrimage unless you take it into account to the footprint, planes, automobiles, transport. Of course, there's a kind of stress with sustainability. So that actually uh, linking pilgrimage, the 70,000 uh, year history of pilgrimage with today uh, connects with what you talked about um, in your chapter in, in the book Peace Journeys, which you co-edited with Ian McIntosh and Noor Farah Haddad. Uh, you talk about the concept of post-pilgrimage, which is the first time I've seen that concept. And so uh, I get to have the opportunity to ask you, uh, what what do you mean by the concept and how how did this concept come into uh, development for you? So um, about 2015, 2016, I was thinking about it. It just, you know how it goes with ideas. You get it in a split second and before you work it out, the year has passed <laughs> because that's, that's a, the thinking process. So I, I was reading about uh, the post-modern world, post-tourism, post-secularism, etc. So I thought, well, uh, post-pilgrimage probably um, is overdue as an introduction. Because tourism, um, post-tourism, is an illusion of reality. Because uh, tourism, you go for in a five-star hotel and you think you're the queen and king for a week. Illusion of reality. But uh, in post-pilgrimage, the era, area of the area and era of individualism, um, it belongs also to a certain measure to a secularism. There is a paradigm shift from traveling to seek God to traveling to seek yourself. There is a, a big gap here. And I would say, okay, if tourism is the illusion of reality, then uh, post-pilgrimage is the reality of the illusion. Um, because it's carefully arranged by spiritual interest. You do exactly what you want to do because you think it's befitting you or beneficial to you. Um, you acknowledge that uh, commercial interests uh, belong part and parcel to pilgrimage as it did in the past. So we have the pure pilgrim who wants nothing to do with um, luxury and everything has to be harsh and uh, all these kind of things. Uh, the post-pilgrim... Um, on the Camino, for instance, they walk their walk, and on their app, they order the hotel room and the gin tonic. Nothing wrong with it, really, because as long as the pilgrimage doesn't work, it's fine. But it is different than the past. Uh, we don't we no longer have um, um, Saint Jerome drumming in our head that we have to be 24/7 a pure pilgrim, and that everything else is bad. Uh, St. Jerome worried about the state of the pilgrims, uh, that they would succumb to the seduction of Jerusalem, these loose women, lying guides, commercial hubbub and whatever. Uh, that is long past us. We accept it as part of being a, a pilgrim because we are nothing else than a tourist, because we go out and we do things outside our normal environment. Uh, many pilgrims especially when they come to uh, Santiago, the end, 
they have an anticlimax because they realized the trip was the thing. Arriving in Santiago, well, you're just a tourist. <laughs> so it, it stops. So reality of the illusion sinks in as well. After yeah, that. I have been thinking a lot about, uh, uh, well, Noga Collins Kreiner talked about um, the continuum of uh, secular and religious pilgrimages and pilgrimages being um, either or any combination of the two. Um, but I, in thinking about the continuum and what I am especially seeing in uh, uh, discussion forums and social media online and just reading accounts of the pilgrims themselves, uh, it's almost as if uh, if we're moving on a continuum from religious to secular, that pilgrimage in some way and pilgrims themselves, the, the continuum is bent, uh, where the secular pilgrims are bouncing back into religious, but the, but the pilgrimage is the religion. But, um, so so the, the act of pilgrimage, uh, the pilgrims as the community, uh, the, the whole, the, I guess, the, the whole experience is the religion um, in some ways. And I'm wondering if you see this trend as well. Well, yes, the continuum is bent. And one uh, continuous line is the spirituality of it. Because the religion is what it is. Uh, but I think a pilgrimage... Um, may have as a motivation a religious thing, uh, healing or punishment. So when you in the Middle Ages you were sent on the forced pilgrimage because I don't know you killed the parish priest uh, and you had to go to Rome on foot and come back with a paper. Nowadays, of course, uh, a secular uh, pilgrim, um, the spiritual thing inside is as active as in the past. It's just a religion. The Prescribed religion is different. It's no longer prescribed. It's um, pick and mix nowadays. Uh, we can do. We are free to do what we want. Uh, we can uh, of uh, God's big buffet. We can just take the the, the, the choices pieces and uh, be happy with that. We don't have to go through the whole process as it was prescribed in the past. So, yes, um, uh, Noga is uh, of course an excellent. Uh, scholar on this, this topic. I mean, uh, she is a prolific writer. And of course, uh, yes, I agree that it's coming back together. And again, it's kind of a bullhorn coming back. Uh, the version ends slowly meet, but not as in the past. It will never be as in the past. Because once you have the freedom in your mind, uh, you never can let it go. So once you're secular and you go on a pilgrimage, you won't become religious, but you can have uh, spiritual moments, even religious moments, I guess, but maybe not permanent. In some ways, it seems like there's also a return to a, um, uh, a type of animism with many of these pilgrimages and also what pilgrims are seeking in terms of the connection with nature and connection with ancestors and connection with something that went before us. Uh, and so this is interesting to me as well uh, that that it maybe maybe in some ways the 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 um, horseshoe as you just talked about or bullhorn that you talked about is actually bouncing us to pre like a 
uh, a state of pre three, 4,000 years uh, back to going out um, and going on journeys that are uh, more focused um, in the natural world? Well, yes, of course. Um, I think animism actually never left us. It's still there now. Um, in the derogatory reform, people say, ah, that's superstition, but it is just a thing of the past. And of course, the uh, prescribed religion have done the best uh, to our shame to uh, make sure we don't have any connection with nature anymore. So the spirit of the tree, the spirit of the river was all said, okay, that's all nonsense. But of course, it's not as deep ingrained in our human condition. Because once we live in, uh, in nature, uh, you have to deal with those things. Um, if you don't believe in anything like that, I suggest anybody to uh, spend one night alone in a dark forest. And let's see how you come out of this. I'm sure you change your mind from short-sighted to a bit far-sighted because it's scary. <laughs> All alone by yourself in a moving movement here, noises, creaking. Uh, what's happening? You have to give it a name. That's also animism. Uh, I have uh, researched a lot the new religious movements. And um, of course, Catholicism has a lot of pagan elements in it. It is like what it is. And these people make the choice to stop their religion before Christianity. So in Malta, we have the temples of Malta. They are buildings of 5,600 years old. And we have groups of people who use these ancient temples to, for their religious desire. Uh, it's not, of course, the religion of the past because we don't know what it is but they have their modern take on it. And uh, it's called a designer religion, most of them. But they go to a temple in Malta to um, pray to the mother goddess. Uh, the mother goddess, of course, is also part of our human condition. It's part of our eternal human needs. Food in the belly, shelter, health, safety, uh, fertility, uh, safe birth, and all the other things. Things were just still with us. They never left us. So the female figure, uh, like uh, the goddess of the past or Our Lady in, uh, in Catholicism, is the warm understanding mother who will listen to you and will encourage you, empower you. Uh, in Malta, we say, in Malta, the women never needed feminism. They had Our Lady. That gave them empowerment enough. Well, I think that's just quite true. So believing in nature and all the animistic things, I think it's uh, part of our nature. Are these temples in Malta places of pilgrimage or are they used uh, more on a regular basis for uh, spiritual practice? Now, we have uh, a very good um, system here. Um, people um, read the work of Noga Kondenskreiner contested space or third space. So between nine and five, these temples are tourist area, but you can rent the temples an hour before and an hour afterwards for rituals. So it's uh, so we don't have uh, a space where tourists come in and then you have people praying or singing or dancing because that doesn't work together. For the same reason, when we have a mass as ch at church, tourists cannot ro freely roam through the church. It's to protect everybody's interest. 
uh, okay. So speaking of of interesting facts about Malta and about you in particular, uh, you're the first knight that I've ever spoken to. So <laughs> I'm really curious about what that means uh, about what the what the order is um, and and how that plays a role in your study of pilgrimage. Okay, so the Order of St. John, before it was the Order of St. John, it was the Hospital of St. John in Jerusalem uh, around 1050, 50 years before the Crusades arrived. There were already Westerners, uh, many forms, many Westerners, Germans, French, um, English, they had their own hospital over there for pilgrims. Um, and pilgrimage is the basic of the Order of St. John, also the uh, hospitality, they call them Hospitaller Knights. So they had uh, hospitals in Jerusalem. Of course, when the Crusades came, uh, the order or the hospital got a new leash of life. So the, um, the either the Turkish or the Arabic authorities were gone. And now suddenly we had a kind of French Norman kingdom over there. And the order, uh, the hospital thought outside the box. And instead of being a closed monastery, they became an open convent. That is, they went outside in, in the world, bringing their hospitality and healing with them. So they also thought, well, uh, pilgrims have to walk all the way from Europe to Jerusalem, or they come by boat, they end in Jaffa. They have to go through hostile territory to arrive at Jerusalem. Why not go get them with an armed escort? And that is the beginning of the Order of St. John as a military organization. So they were not crusaders later on, they were just part of the uh, Latin kingdom which supported uh, crusades. Now the order then uh, made a network of hospitals along the most um, common pilgrim routes from Europe towards Jerusalem, uh, very much akin to what was already in place on the route to Santiago. So we have two networks, one to Jerusalem and one to Santiago. And the order of today, of course, is still a uh, hospital order. Our flagship is the um, uh, maternity hospital in Bethlehem, where uh, the order has this ho hospital where everybody from the region can come and have their babies in the most secure and um, hygienic circumstances. Uh, the poorest women, mostly Palestinian women, everything is free for them. For those who have money, they pay. And that is, that is the, um, or the flag of the Order of St. John is hoisted every day on the hospital within Muslim territory, but the hospital helps everybody, which means it is possible to have a peaceful coexistence next to each other. And that is one of the things which uh, makes me rather proud. Now, the, of course, the, the mottos of the order were Tuitio um, Fide and Obsequium Pauperum, Latin for defense of the faith. Nowadays, it's seen as nurturing of the faith. And of course, care for the poor and the sick. And I think it's a noble thing. So we take our mottos also from St. John the Baptist, who were the first proto-martyr of Christianity, uh, selfless giving rather than selfish taking, uh, being critical and being saying the truth, even if it's going to cost you. Nowadays, we see that in a polarized, um, confrontational form of politics, the lie is king and the truth is somewhere on the bottom. But of course, these things don't last for long. Uh, we have a long list of 
dictators and other people who live with the truth. And now they're uh, looked very bad on by history. So saying the truth is a very important thing within, uh, well, within John the Baptist. Therefore, it, uh, for an academic like myself and yourself, um, we always used to, uh, we must look at all sides of the argument, right? We, can't, we cannot take one side of the argument. You have to look all around it. So that is a very much uh, St. John the Baptist thing. But you have to come out with, if not the truth, a credible interpretation. So that is what drives me, uh, what drives other people, um, especially, of course, uh, the critical approach is very important. Many people in the past were afraid that a critical approach would make you lose your faith. So we had uh, book burnings, blacklist of books. Uh, you were not uh, allowed to read things. But I think um, every Christian words or every religious person uh, worth their salt must read also secular works, going arguments against your religion. And let's see how strong you are. Uh, so this long heritage of caring for pilgrims and um, in some ways being the defender and, and um, companion of pilgrims to ensure they arrive safely into Jerusalem is is really interesting. Uh, it, are the, can you recommend some writings uh, from these uh, early knights who um, undertook these this role? Yes, of course. Uh, there is uh, there's a host of material available, um, and uh, I myself I'm an editor and uh, uh, contributed to a. Uh, a local journal in Malta called uh, Sacra Militia, and we try to find articles uh, from all over the place uh, in favor or in disfavor of the order and uh, to make it a lively thing. Um, let me see if I have some books here ready at hand. Uh, well, latest one. Um, this one, for instance, would be a good one uh, by uh, Nicholas Morton. Uh, he's a well-established uh, writer. Um, there's this one in French, uh, The Legend of the Hospital of St. John. Um, and of course, there's uh, Helen Nicholson. And of course, uh, uh, many, many others. So uh, the, uh, the idea of writing about the hospital um, takes many points of view. And there are people who uh, totally abhor it and they say, okay, you're a bunch of crusaders and uh, you're no good. Other people go in the other direction. Uh, as many academics, I'm just uh, quite happy with the middle of the road. Uh, because the funny thing is when you're middle of the road, if the normative thinking goes to the left, you're certainly a right winger. And if the normative thinking in politics goes to the left, or to the right, you're a left winger or a right winger. But in fact, you're still middle of the road. And I think that's a, not a safe position, but it's uh, sensible. It's long-sighted. Uh, either swing to an extreme is not very far-sighted. And I like to be with the far-sighted persons rather than the short-sighted ones. Oh, so what can, what can we learn about pilgrimage journeys and pilgrims themselves by 
looking at the experiences through the lens of 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 those who cared for pilgrims well of course uh, there is a human duty so everybody nowadays uh, is full of rights and they forgot all about their duties uh, but when you care for pilgrims it's mostly a feeling of duty civic duty religious duty uh, to care for others because um when you care only for yourself or for your own little club, that doesn't carry much weight, um, I think, in life. So you need to give some energy also to care for those who are not so fortunate as yourself. And if I look from my position, uh, probably of the, uh, I don't know, 7 billion people, uh, 6 billion at least are less fortunate than I am, I would say. And there's a handful where it's more fortunate. We discount them. but. I think it's a duty to care for your neighbors. Have you had the experiences of caring for pilgrims uh, in in your your experiences with pilgrimage? Yes, we do this in uh, in various ways. When I started off with the order, I uh, was in the hospital. So um, you uh, care for people, you wash people, you feed people, you bring them to bed, you help with the medicine, you clean. After them, you clean their toilet, the shower, you help them wash, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Um, that is a very humiliating uh, of hum uh, humiliating uh, experience. It humbles you. Not humiliation, but uh, I express myself wrong. It humbles you because you see people in need who can't possibly help themselves. And that is, um, um, say, the unconditionality of charity. Um, in Malta, we have, uh, of course, uh, many churches. Many of them have either a statue uh, or uh, something else of a woman um, breastfeeding her child. Now, a picture of a breastfeeding woman is um, the embodiment of charity because you help people who cannot help themselves. And that is unconditional love for humanity. So that humbles you. It also makes you stronger because it makes you uh, appreciate what you have, your health. Of course, once that is gone, everything is gone. So no matter how much money you have, uh, if you don't have health, then you have nothing. Uh, later on, I uh, <clears throat> moved after many years, I moved on. And now I'm in charge of the, of the pilgrims themselves. So to devise a program to take them out to uh, do things. But I've pushed many wheelchair up many hills. And that is also fun because you can, the un un unconditional love you give to the pilgrims, when they're in their wheelchair or not, uh, you get something back. So for instance, um, uh, there are a number of young women or young men who are suffering from spina. So they have their bodies horribly deformed, their mind is perfect, but they can't do anything. So you take them out and you have a coffee and you have a, a moment of dolce far niente. So you have a piece of cake and a coffee and just, sit in the sun and enjoy. And these are big rewards. It's very small for them, it's everything. But you have to appreciate it as well that a small gesture can mean the world for other people. So it brings you back to the human condition again, every time and again. Um, it's, uh, and, and the other thing is uh, care is cure. If you care for people, uh, a lot of things come out. So there are a lot of elderly people in the world now who have ailments and nobody wants to listen to them anymore because oh her again with her nagging 
the priest doesn't listen, the doctor doesn't listen. Then they come with us to Lourdes and we just listen for a whole week. What we then get is not the big miracle, you may hope for it, but you get the smaller miracle of acceptance. Uh, there are people younger than me who had a CVA, a cardiovascular attack, and their body doesn't want to go anymore as it was in the past. Now they go through a dip. It's like any um, process of mourning or of addiction. You have to go through a few stages before you come to this moment that you say, yes, now I'm ready to accept that I still can have a wonderful life, not as it was before, but thank you for helping me seeing it. And that is a great reward. So this moment of acceptance, that's a small miracle and they happen numerous times in Lourdes, any pilgrim's place basically. When you're talking, uh, I'm thinking about what you said earlier about um, the strong history of Catholicism in Malta and uh, the, the feminine uh, it, uh, energy of Our Lady. And then you're talking about the knights who are men um, who are engaged in these acts of caring and service and nurturing and I'm curious how this merges together, uh, where men are doing the work that has traditionally been uh, attributed to women. So since the early days of the hospital, um, Our Lady was a patron saint, together with St. John the Baptist, because of their qualities. And Our Lady in Malta, especially in Malta, has been um, a tremendous support. Also, we in Malta, we have suffered many attacks of the our neighbors from North Africa and from the Ottomans. And we had the great siege, 1565. And uh, every time uh, the Maltese survived, it was thanks to Our Lady. So Our Lady is also seen as our Lady of Victories, um, the ultimate general who protects the people against the inroads of the pirates and slave traders and things like this. So if you go into um, our church, uh, St. John's Co-Cathedral, you have enormous wall painting where Our Lady is dressed up in the classical cuirass, like Nika um, Athene, sword in hand, and the trampled enemies under her foot. So uh, it's a tremendous power. And uh, many people in Malta and in the world, I guess, um, they uh, get inspiration from this very strong woman. It's a strong woman, a powerhouse. And uh, men or no men, uh, the knights uh, have in, our Lady, one of the, well, an, an ultimate patron saint. How has your own uh, personal faith uh, changed or, uh, or impacted by the work that you do with pilgrims? Well, it has given me a, uh, <clears throat> a wider perspective. Now, I always have been uh, in a critical position uh, looking at people, looking at things, uh, in my previous work and also as an academic. And I think it uh, comes in very handy to have this. Um, there are people, of course, who have this natural piety. When you look at them, though, they're pious. And I don't have these qualities. I'm just a blunt instrument compared to them. Uh, but I do what I can, so to speak. And um, I you know, wholly, uh, wholeheartedly support everything. But I can never be that, it's not in me. So uh, I have to do something else. And that is just um, uh, make my hands dirty and help people 
carrying them from one wheelchair to the other, in bed, out of bed, in the plane, outside the plane, um, whatever we can do. Afterwards, by the way, we have in Malta every three months or every month, really, we have uh, coffee mornings where we get our pilgrims and uh, we have a kind of temperature check. So how are you doing? Because we want them to keep the pilgrim feeling as long as possible till next year. Because pilgrim, once you're home, the pilgrim feeling may, well, may wither, may go. But the positive attributes of being a pilgrim, uh, we like to kindle as long as we can. Uh, because we have understood that is of their benefit. That's really interesting to me, uh, coming from a psychological uh, standpoint, that the the post pilgrimage, not in your concept of post pilgrimage, but the time after the pilgrimage, uh, is often a a time of it's a big letdown for many pilgrims, and mm -hmm. they experience depression uh, and. Uh, challenges in relationships and just general difficulty returning to the life um, at home and where they, as pilgrims, they felt that they were uh, where they should be or were supposed to be, or they felt more alive as themselves and then going home can feel very different. So it's interesting that, uh, that your you and your your uh, fellow knights have con have seen this as it is as a challenging time for pilgrims, and you have implemented uh, uh, post um, activities so that people can continue to engage as pilgrims. Yes, and it is uh, uh, very popular. Of course, now we have to be a bit careful with the COVID. <clears throat> Many people suffer now. Uh, physically and uh, mentally. And we hope we can uh, continue with these coffee mornings and lunches at, as soon as we can. Uh, but of course, um, when you all come together and you see all these people, they become your friends. And uh, we have many doctors in our club, uh, so to speak, as, as knights. So uh, they know exactly what, um, how we can treat them. Uh, but they just want company. They want enthusiastic people around them. They want a bit of uh, well, a, a coffee morning can mean so much. It, I mean, financially, it doesn't cost much. Uh, we get a lot of uh, subsidies of uh, hotels and places where we come for the coffee morning. The costs are very little, but the effect is enormous. So to become a pilgrim is one thing. To remain a pilgrim, you need to work on this. You need, you need to keep um, the fire going, so to speak. Well, isn't that why why people head back out for another pilgrimage? Uh, because they are trying to reconnect and reinvigorate the fire that they felt um, in the last pilgrimage. Yeah, it's also pilgrimage, like any top sport, is extremely addictive. The adrenaline rush, so to speak. Uh, when you walk, um, I can't describe how beautiful it is when you do a long walk. And after the first uh, 50 minutes, you're checking your physical resources, food, water, armor, socks in the right order, and all these little things. Um, and then when you start walking, you come into this cadence, in this, this rhythm. And your body walks by itself, and you have time to free up your brain. And that is where the magic works. Uh, the self-healing, uh, recalibrating of, uh, of yourself. Uh, you suffered some criticism. 
And a, a pilgrimage is an excellent way of um, placing it, criticism of your own person into your own and come out a better person. And I think it's a wonderful thing. A walking, uh, nothing uh, cannot, well, there's nothing which cannot be fixed by a big walk, so to speak. And that is what many people say, many writers, they uh, marvel at the effects of walking. And then when you have a, a pilgrimage motivation, even better. Uh, you've, you've heard about the stories who went into Santiago, tried to do it as fast as possible. The, what's the point? Exactly. I think we get caught up in the destination and forget that it's the the journey that is what is transformational. Exactly. The journey is the old thing. The arrival is uh, it's a letdown most of the time. Yeah. So what uh, I mean, we're so fortunate, aren't we, that we get to work um, as academics in the space of pilgrimage studies to uh I mean, we we have a very large community of interesting people that we get to work with and all of these different dimensions of pilgrimage that we get to research. Uh, certainly the the work that you uh, that I referenced earlier, Peace Journeys, um, was very inspirational to me. And I'm curious what projects you're working on now uh, that may be coming out in the in the next uh, year or so. No, so I'm uh, working on a number of projects. <clears throat> uh, one of them is uh, pain and pain relief. So um, when you go to Lourdes, what kind of pain do these people have? And um, I often no I notice when you have a good time, the pain is all gone. The moment they have to get on the plane again, oh no, my back aches. And all the, of course, there's a memory in pain. Uh, they have to go back to their son-in-law who is not so nice to them or to the daughter who has no patience or the doctor who thinks they're all complaining for nothing, they're facing that reality again and that increases their pain, mental pain, physical pain. That's also why we have the coffee mornings to see if we can balance things out. So the follow-up session, temporary relief. Um, then of course, um, as I started off my academic work as a classicist, I always go back to the bottom of things back to the vagueness of, of time. So uh, souvenirs and pilgrimage throughout history. Uh, wonderful topic. Uh, some things I've been writing on it and uh, it's uh, fine to see what connects us worldwide because in every pilgrimage, you come back home with something. If you go on the Hajj, you come back with something. If you go to Lourdes, you come back with something. Uh, if you go to Santiago, you come back besides the blisters with also something. A silly fridge magnet. But still, you know, it's there to keep your mind focused on the good times you have or on the blessed times you have. And then, of course, uh, there's the business model on, tour, on pilgrimage that hasn't changed over the centuries, uh, not even, even worldwide, because people have to travel, people have to stay somewhere, people have to eat, people have to drink, they have to feel secure. And um, there's a wonderful article by Bell and Dale, I think 2010, who have uh, written about the, um, the medieval part, but I'm more uh, concentrated on the modern infrastructure of pilgrimage. Uh, if you want to be a pilgrim, you don't want to be a tourist. That is the fin du plaisir. Right? If you, oh, the tourist. No, no, I'm a pilgrim. Ah, you're a tourist. Uh, people, that hurts them. So uh, how is this infrastructure? How does this work? Mentally and physically. And 
uh, what kind of policies do you need to make as a destination to make sure you can be ready to receive pilgrims? Because just opening a site doesn't do it. No, there's more to it. I, I would think that you are going to be very busy with that project uh, as we re-enter a post-COVID reality. That uh, I be I I think that people will probably be coming back to that 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 model and revisiting it, and things are changing, and yet they are staying the same. But some things change, and you never can go back into the past. So you have to look forward. That's why I also developed the, the model of post pilgrimage. Uh, people who think they can go back into into the time, they are disillusioned. Uh, or they're disillusioned. You can't go back in time. You can try to approach things of the past, but you always have the modern time to remind you of that you're living in the present. So pilgrim st structure nowadays we'll see, uh, uh, for instance, transport. Um, the big um, diesel coaches will disappear and we have silent electric coaches. And pilgrims will go first on that because they also want to do something good for the world. So pilgrims could be used as a spear point into um, greening the transport business in pilgrimage. Of course, they want quality. Pilgrims want quality because they think themselves better than tourists. So they want different transport. They want to have, make sure that the hotel is plastic free and has a zero footprint and all these kind of things. So there's a lot of things happening where Till a few years ago in Lourdes, everything was plastic. Uh, you get a cup of coffee, plastic. Nowadays, uh, a bamboo spoon and a paper cup. It's, it's a beginning. So we need to work also as, as well on the destination that they are environmental friendly in many ways. That is a new goal also of uh, pilgrimage, I would say. I, I mean, who knew that pilgrims can change the world? Well, they've been doing so for a long time, so <laughs> there's nothing new there. If you want to learn more about Dane's work, he can be reached at dane.monroe, M-U-N-R-O, at um.edu.mt. You have just heard a conversation with Dane Monroe, hosted by Dr. Heather Warfield and produced by Jonah Bayer, copyright 2021, all rights reserved. Thank you for listening to Meaningful Journeys. This program is supported in part by Antioch University New England and the Meaningful Life Institute. We would love to connect with you on social media, on Instagram, on Twitter and Facebook, or by email, info at meaningfuljourneys.net or our website, www.meaningfuljourneys.net. We hope you will join us next time on our shared quest for meaning as we connect humanity one step at a time.